Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Let me also welcome you on this holiday weekend. In two days, we will celebrate an important holiday in our country, uh, July the 4th, Independence Day, uh, the incredible freedom that we enjoy in this country. I pray we never take that for granted. Uh, But today, uh, we celebrate freedom that is even more significant than that. Uh, We celebrate our freedom in Jesus because of the grace of God. And as we talk again about the grace of God today, the importance of uh, not only celebrating, but fully embracing the grace of God in our lives and extending the grace of God to others. I want you to hear these words from Acts chapter 15 this morning, an incredibly significant moment in the life of the early church that is all about grace and all about freedom. Uh, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question after much discussion Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. If you know the storyline of Acts, he is referencing his encounter with Cornelius and his family. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are, Jew and Gentile alike. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James, one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, he's referencing Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, and he quotes from the prophet Amos, After this, I will return and rebuild David's David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. And James concludes by saying, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult 
for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Last Sunday, we explored the opening paragraph of Ephesians chapter 2, a paragraph that focuses on the grace of God. In a couple of very straightforward statements, Paul says, we are saved by grace. It's a paragraph that reminds us that salvation is a gift from God. Salvation is not something that we deserve. It is not something that we earn. It is a gift from God. Uh, today's text, the, these verses that I've read from Acts chapter 15, also focus on the grace of God and the freedom that we experience because of that grace. I mentioned last Sunday, and this wouldn't be true for all of us, but I mentioned last Sunday that some of us grew up not knowing how to look at grace. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that many folks were uncomfortable talking about grace and talking about freedom in Jesus. And I suspect that is still true in certain quarters today. That's where Acts chapter 15 is such a crucial text. Uh, I don't know what your appreciation of church history may be, but if you know anything at all about church history, and if you know anything at all about our history and our fellowship over the last couple of centuries, you know that we've had some brotherhood church disagreements. Some of them we think are very, very significant, but none of them even begin to compare to the issues at stake in Acts chapter 15. When I was in graduate school all of those years ago, one of my professors created a list of 100 issues that had created division within our fellowship. Issues like how we practice communion, whether we can support orphans' homes, whether we can cooperate with other churches, issues like instrumental music and premillennialism and women's roles in the church and marriage and divorce. But again, none of those compare to the issues at stake in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, the early church almost split over the question of how one is saved. Let me remind you of the storyline of the book of Acts. Acts tells us that the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, the good news was preached, first of all, to the Jewish people beginning on the day of Pentecost. But it, but it isn't long before that good news is being preached to all people, Samaritans, Gentiles, primarily in the book of Acts through the preaching and the travels of the Apostle Paul. The question in Acts chapter 15 is not whether Gentiles could be Christians. The answer to that is yes. The question was, do they also have to be Jewish in order to be Christian? That is, do they have to be circumcised in order to be Christian? Do they have to observe certain days to be Christian? Do they have to keep the law of Moses in order to be Christian? And the text tells us that there were Jewish believers who were a part of the group of the Pharisees, Jewish believers. In other words, they had become followers of Jesus. But as Pharisees, they were insisting that Gentiles had to be circumcised, that Gentiles had to keep the law. All of those questions lead to this moment in Acts 15 that we know as the Jerusalem Conference or the Jerusalem Council. The ultimate conclusion stated so directly and so beautifully by the Apostle Peter is this. We believe 
It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Again, Jew and Gentile alike. The question for us today is, do we believe that? And before we respond with a yes, let me ask us to just hit the pause button and to ask, do we truly believe that? You see, we have no trouble singing about grace, but I fear, as I reflect even on my own journey, I fear that sometimes we have trouble truly leaning into the grace of God, fully embracing the grace of God in our own lives, and even beyond that, extending the grace of God to others. At the preaching and teaching level, I've never known a preacher who was fired for preaching that were saved by works. But I've known some preachers who were fired because of their emphasis on grace. In certain quarters, you can preach on works and never mention grace, and that seems to be okay. But if you preach on grace without mentioning works, you're in trouble. And so the challenge of embracing grace the only thing that saves us is the grace of God. As I've shared with you throughout this series, I'm preaching from texts this summer that have had significant influence in my journey of faith, and so texts that breathe life into me. And, and as I reflect on a text like Acts chapter 15, I am reminded, may not be true for all of us in the audience, but I'm reminded that at times we indeed have trouble celebrating and embracing the grace of God. And I would simply pose the question, why? Well, maybe as a beginning place, sometimes we have trouble embracing and celebrating the grace of God because we simply have a wrong view of God. Many of us grew up with a view of God that was more about punishment than it was about grace, a pretty autocratic view of God. I've referenced the little book by J.B. Phillips uh, in previous studies, a book entitled Your God is Too Small, in which Phillips talks about different perspectives that one might have of God. And one of those perspectives, and with, with no disrespect to those who are in law enforcement, Phillips talks about a, per, 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 a perspective of God where we feel like there is a policeman right behind us, ready to write a ticket, ready to arrest us, ready to punish us, the minute we make a mistake, a very autocratic view of God. What we need to see is the gracious God of Scripture, the primary quality of God we see over and over and over again in Scripture is that God is a God of grace and mercy and compassion. The Old Testament Psalms, the hymn book of the early church, it's a book that resonates with phrase after phrase about the steadfast, unending love of God. And we come to stories, the parables of Jesus in the Gospels, stories like the three we know so well in Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and, and the, two, the two boys, the two brothers. The radical thing about those stories is that they don't often end the way folks thought those stories might end. That's true many times in the parables of Jesus. And so a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep out in the open country to go looking for one lost lamb, a gracious, pursuing God, a younger son who has wasted his inheritance, who has his speech all prepared for his father. I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father throws a party, welcoming his son home. Meantime, the older brother who is saying basically, oh no, dad, 
He's not worthy to be your son. Let's just put him out in the barn with the rest of the hired servants. God is a gracious God who, according to Peter in 2 Peter 3, wants all people to be saved. And as I talk about us embracing and extending grace to others, the question might be, do we want all people to be saved? And again, before we quickly answer with a yes, hit the pause button. Do we really want all people to be saved, or have we already passed judgment on folks, determining who can and who cannot be a part of us, a part of our fellowship? Secondly, we sometimes have trouble embracing grace because we have a wrong view of freedom. One of the incredible blessings we enjoy in Jesus is that we are free. That is basically the entire message of the book of Galatians. That we are free from sin, free from the law, free from the yoke of bondage that legalism brings. Now, one of the footnotes in Galatians is we need to understand that freedom in Jesus does not give us license to live any way we choose. In fact, freedom always brings responsibility. Freedom in Jesus leads to holy living. In fact, I am convinced that the greatest motivation for holy living is the grace of God and the freedom that is ours in Jesus. The problem is that we often tend to run to extremes. For example, think about the different principles that God has given us as to how we are to live. One extreme is to simply reject the principles that God gives us to say, that doesn't matter. My prayer is that we never do that. The other extreme is to purely turn those principles into law-keeping, into legalism, as if our righteousness hinges upon how well we keep a set of rules. An example, the Sabbath principle, one of the Ten Commandments. God gave that principle for our benefit that we might experience rest, that we might experience recreation, that we might focus on God. And if with any principle, it's possible to run to extremes. One extreme would simply be we just ignore it. And I fear that we as 21st century American Christians often do that with the Sabbath principle. We're so busy with life, we don't take time to slow down and to rest. Or on the other extreme, like the Pharisees of the first century, we turn it into a burden. What God intended to be a blessing becomes a burden, and Jesus has to address that on numerous occasions in the Gospels. I may have shared this story with you before, but when I was in graduate school, again, all of those years ago, Memphis, Tennessee, there was an Orthodox Jew in Memphis who began auditing some classes at the graduate school. And we were sitting one day in a brown bag luncheon, probably 25 or 30 of us, and we were talking about the different ways we look at Scripture, and we ended up talking about the Sabbath principle. And we're sitting there thinking, we've got an Orthodox Jew in our midst. How do you look at the Sabbath? And he was honest enough to say to us, I look at it in very black and white ways. He said, let me give you an illustration. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. And so what do you do if your wife, who is pregnant, goes into labor on the Sabbath day? He said, you're not supposed to, for example, turn the ignition in your car because you're lighting a fire, you're doing work. 
but it's an emergency. And so he said, when my wife went into labor, I started the car, I took her to the hospital. Emergency over. And so he gets her in, he gets her checked in, and he turns to one of the guys at the reception desk, and he said, somebody left their car running in the parking lot. You'd better go turn it off. Because for him, the emergency was over, and he couldn't work. We run to extremes, and the same is true with grace and freedom. On one hand, we may believe that grace is just too good to be true, and so we either dismiss it, or we try to earn our salvation. On the other hand, we turn grace into a license for sin. Almost to echo the words of Paul in Romans 5 and 6, after all, we're covered by grace, and so we can just live any way we choose. Again, from a preaching and teaching perspective for a moment, if I preach grace and freedom, someone may well say he doesn't stand for holiness. He's just giving them a license to sin. He's not hard enough on sin. And I've been accused of that. My response always is we've missed what grace is all about if that's our take. You see, grace challenges us. Grace teaches us to be responsible, to be holy people. As someone once put it, we really don't need a license to sin. We're already doing a pretty good job of it on our own. Yes, the danger always exists. Those who change the grace of God into a license for immorality, as the book of Jude puts it. Number three, we have trouble embracing grace because of a wrong view of salvation. Again, not true for all of us, perhaps, but for some of us, we grew up believing that you find salvation the old-fashioned way. You earn it. In fact, for some of us, it was similar to how you get a bank loan. And again, no disrespect for those of you who are in banking, but you get a bank loan when you're able to prove to the bank that you really don't need it. You put up enough collateral. And so grace is what God gives you when you show him you really don't need it. Now, before you dismiss me, I've actually heard folks define grace this way. Grace is doing all you can, and then God makes up the difference. No, to reflect on last week, we were dead. We were powerless. We're saved by grace alone. Grace means we don't get what we deserve. It is a gift. And then maybe sometimes we have trouble celebrating and embracing grace because we have a wrong view of self. Grace bothers, and again, I speak to my journey, grace bothers some of us because we don't want to admit that we're helpless, that we're hopeless. That's one reason the cross was a stumbling block for the Jews. They took pride in themselves. They took pride in their keeping of the law. But you see, the cross of Jesus declares that we are totally dependent upon God for rescue. And so, Father, forgive me for my sins, including the sin of self-righteousness. The Bible's actually full of people who had trouble with grace, folks who didn't feel like they needed grace, folks who felt like they were good enough without grace, and folks who didn't think that others deserved grace. I think about the story in Luke 7 of Simon and the woman who anoints the feet of Jesus. Simon who thought... If Jesus is really a prophet, he would know this woman is a sinner, that she really doesn't deserve anything because she's a sinner. The older brother in Luke 15, who took confidence in his works, 
and who complained that his dad was throwing a party for his brother who had come home. And so maybe a better question is, why do we celebrate? Why should we embrace grace? The simple wrong solution in Acts 15 would have been to circumcise all the Gentiles. Just add one little feature. Uh, in that respect, if you would permit me, let me take us back to Galatians for just a moment. And if you haven't read Galatians in a while, let me encourage you to do that in the next few days. Because this is where Galatians is so crucial to our understanding of grace. In fact, when we read the book of Galatians, I think big picture, Paul is kind of painting the picture of at least three options folks might perceive as to how we're saved. One, you're saved by law or by law keeping. If you just keep enough rules, you can work your way to heaven. And he reminds us, none of us, none of us are perfect. In fact, the question is, is, is that really how we would like to pursue relationship with God? Secondly, Paul says, you're saved by the grace of God, and that's obviously where he's going to camp. Now again, hear me carefully, salvation is a gift because of the grace of God, but we can certainly reject God's grace. The point of grace is that we graciously receive, that we say yes to grace. And for me, that helps make sense of so many other things in Scripture. For example, baptism. And we celebrate with these young people who've been baptized in recent days. It's not the mere act of baptism itself that matters. It is one's faith in the work of God. Baptism is that tremendous faith experience where I throw myself and my future on the work of Jesus. Not on my works not on my righteousness. We're saved by grace. But there's a third approach, and that's what is at the heart of Galatians and what is at the heart of Acts 15 and often, I think, at the heart of our abuse of grace, and that is the danger of mixing grace and law. We add to grace. Where the language of Galatians chapter 5 is so fascinating, it's the only place in Scripture where the phrase fall from grace is used. And it's where Paul says when we add to grace, when we think it's something in addition to the grace of God, when we try to be justified by law-keeping, that's, that's when we fall from grace, according to Paul. And that can play out in a thousand and one different ways, just like the Pharisees in Acts chapter 15. Oh, the Gentile has to be circumcised, has to keep the law. Just like the Pharisees in Acts 15, we can create a list of things that we require of others in order for them to be Christian or to be in fellowship with us theologically, politically, any number of issues. The message of Galatians is we're saved by the grace of God. And so in chapter 1 of Galatians, Paul says those who have added rules to the gospel have actually perverted the gospel. Again, I want you to hear me clearly. When I use a term like legalism, legalism is not law-keeping. Legalism is depending on law-keeping to be right with God. It makes human response the essence of salvation, boasting in our response rather than in the grace of God. And again, that's at the heart of this gathering in Acts chapter 15. And so very quickly in the final two or three minutes, 
as we think about grace in Acts 15. Let me remind us as that story unfolds, there is an argument for grace from history, an argument from ministry, and an argument from Scripture or prophecy. An argument from history. Peter is the first one who speaks. He not only affirms that God saves people by grace as he references his encounter with Cornelius, but he basically says people are not saved the way I once thought they were. Because again, for him, it was all wrapped into the law. And so again, he references his interaction with Cornelius where God initially sent a vision, a sheet from heaven with clean and unclean animals And he tells Peter in very direct ways through that vision that all people, all people need the good news, that Jew and Gentile alike. And in fact, in some respects, it is God saying to Peter, Peter, I've been saving Gentiles and working with Gentiles for years without your permission. And so Peter says from a very practical point of view, even we as Jews could not bear what we are now pressing upon the Gentiles. We could not keep the law perfectly. No, we believe it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're saved. An argument from ministry is only one verse in Acts 15, but it is a rehearsal of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in their missionary travels. Basically, the question is, on whose side do you see the work of God, the miracles of God? God confirmed, Paul will say on another occasion, the message of his grace. And I really believe that churches today that preach and practice grace are churches where the Holy Spirit is at work. Wounds are healed. Folks are saved. We love one another. We walk alongside one another. The Holy Spirit is still confirming the gospel of grace. And then James, the last speaker, uses an argument from prophecy. He quotes from the prophet Amos. Words that clearly show that God welcomed Gentiles. Even using a word translated people or nation, a word that would have been used to describe the Jews throughout the Old Testament. And here is Amos saying, the Gentiles are a people, are a nation belonging to God. And so he says, it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God wonder how many times we make it difficult for those who are turning to God. I've thoroughly enjoyed conversations with Caleb and Jenny Beck in the last several days and as they talk about God's work among Islamic refugees, folks who are coming to see Jesus, who are beginning to embrace and to understand what the grace of God is all about. I think a text like Acts 15 speaks into that. We honor folks who are coming to know God, and we don't make it difficult. We focus on the grace of God. And so on this holiday weekend, when we'll hear so much about freedom in this country, I again remind us of the most incredible freedom imaginable. And my message today is basically, may we embrace the grace of God, and may we extend that grace to one another to others. The sweet sound of amazing grace. Let's stand as we sing together.
Yeah. 
amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Uh, just let those words sink in. There's so many reasons why God invites us to come to the table every week. The table reminds us that our focus is on the death and resurrection of Jesus. The table reminds us of the unity we share together in Jesus. The table reminds us of our call to ministry, to love God and to love others as God has loved us. The table reminds us of our forever future with God. And woven through all of those, the table gives us space to hear those sweet words again, to embrace the amazing grace of God in our lives. In those moments when I feel like I do not deserve grace, the table reminds me of the grace of God that rescues me. In those moments when I feel like I don't need grace, after all, I've got it all together. The table reminds me how desperately I need God's grace. And as many of you have heard me say in leading communion, using Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, at the table every week, God says yes to us again. And so may you hear those words again today as we eat the bread drink the cup. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Let's pray together. God, it is amazing grace that saves us. And we come to the table thankful. Thankful for the gift of Jesus. Thankful for his body and his blood. We remember the cross celebrate the resurrection we affirm our unity and we hear again those sweet sweet words amazing grace in the name of Jesus
thank you for your gift that we now have an opportunity to give to those around us who have yet to hear this gift of grace. Father, this is your gift. This is your your blessing of finances that we give back on your behalf for the sake of the world. So just as we accept your grace that is freely given, so now we freely give that your kingdom would come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. We sing grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is grace. God's grace, 
grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace god's grace grace that is greater than all our sin so grateful for the grace that Jesus gives us. Each day we wake up as a new chance for us to accept His grace and worship Him through our actions and words and thoughts as a response to His gift. And we hope that today you've been able to make this choice during our worship together. We're really excited to introduce some new people to you this morning. This family has decided to make Monterey their church home. So please welcome Eric and Lainey Dickey. We're really glad that they're here and excited to see how God uses them in our church body. If you see them or meet them, make sure you go out of your way to help them feel welcome. It's on us to extend the love of Jesus to all people. So let's do that together. Today is the first Sunday of the month, so we're going to take a second contribution that goes to helping us keep our building maintained and taken care of. That may not seem like a big deal, but being a steward of this building allows us to open it up to others in our community who are looking for a safe place to meet. It's also helpful to make sure that this is comfortable for us during the week when we meet. So if you'd like to give today, you can do that by putting money in the baskets at the back of the worship center, or you can give online by selecting First Sunday Building Fund from the drop-down menu. Thanks for coming out for our softball tournament and brisket cook-off last Wednesday. Summer gives us a chance to connect in different ways during the week. This Wednesday, spend time connecting with friends and family. There will be no kids or adult classes or activities at the building this Wednesday night because of the holiday week. God made us for rest, so maybe you need a break this week. Hopefully Wednesday can be a space where you can find that. The following Wednesday, July 12th, will be our all-church dessert potluck, so make sure to join us for that. You're not going to want to miss it. Monterey 101 starts next Sunday during Bible class. This is our two-week class that is designed to help newcomers and guests know a little bit more about Monterey. But most importantly, it's to give us a chance to get to know you. This is a great place for questions and see how God may be calling you to be part of the church family. Part one is next Sunday and part two will be the following Sunday on July 16th. Thanks again for being here today. You're an encouragement to someone this morning. That's the cool thing about this. You don't have to know how God uses you. Our invitation is to simply trust that God has used you. Now please stand as we finish this morning with our elders blessing. And good morning church and happy uh, 4th of July to you. Um, we do focus a lot on freedom this time of year, and I appreciate Barry's uh, message this morning. There's a feller in the New Testament named Titus, and Titus is an excellent example of exactly what Barry was talking about historically this morning. He was a Gentile who was uncircumcised, uh, and one of the guys kind of that Paul was fighting.